Hello and welcome to another episode of Behind the Blazer. I'm your host, Scott Sempier. In today's episode, I talk with Michael Ashby via Zoom. He tells us about his role in the Philadelphia Vocal Conservatory as a vocal teacher, his experiences with the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale, and what motivates him to be the best vocal teacher he can be. Enjoy. Behind the Blazer is the official podcast for the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. For over 50 years, the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale has been entertaining audiences near and far as America's ambassadors of song. The Emmy-winning and Grammy-nominated program has toured regions and countries of all inhabited continents, performing for many dignitaries and in many of the world's premier concert venues. This podcast, Behind the Blazer, reveals the stories from the choir through interview format. I'm here through Zoom with voice teacher Michael Ashby. I want to welcome you to the show today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So when people see you around the building, the first thing I noticed, for instance, was your epic beard. That thing is awesome. <laughs> How long have you had your beard? Um, uh, my well, just a beard since I was in my 20s. There was a certain amount of time when I was doing a lot of theater that I had to shave it off. I think when I was playing Ben Franklin, I couldn't have a beard for like a couple of years where I, I was just always having to shave it off for the next role. I don't know. I did, it's just gotten bigger and bigger and I like it. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like my favorite thing. And you know, I was just talking about this the other day uh, at a university that I was at. They had a community outreach program. And when I went there to get a job, I was already a graduate assistant at the university. So I said, I want to work for the community program. And they said, okay, you have to come in and do an interview lesson. I was like, okay. So I went and taught in front of people. And it was like a 14, 15 year old girl that they you know, gave me to teach. And I improved her and she got better and we got along really well and it went really well. And I started teaching there. Later on, I talked to other friends who worked there. They said, why did you have to do that? What do you mean? Didn't everybody have to do it? I said, no, everybody who's a grad assistant just automatically can teach there. We don't understand why you had to. And I found out that they thought my appearance would frighten children. <laughs> and I was like, really? Because you know what? The kids never have a problem with me. Right. I've had a few adults, but, but the children, they seem to have no issue with that whatsoever. I'm just another person. It, it was just, it was always funny to me that people were so, the adults were very concerned about that, but not the people who actually mattered. So <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. I'd, I'd like to hear about who you are and, and how you came to the boys choir. So can you tell us about where you grew up and how you got into music? <clears throat> well, I grew up on a farm in Indiana and when I was seven years old, I was at my grandmother's house in town where they had cable and I happened to be switching channels and I saw Joan Sutherland singing the mad scene from Lucia de Lammermoor. And somehow that stuck with me. <laughs> and later on, I wanted to become an opera singer and I went to college for it. Went through a lot of trials and tribulations with technique through some teachers that I had and finally got all that sorted out and have become more of a teacher than a performer myself these days. So. What I like to do, the way I like to think about it is that I try to be the teacher that I wish I'd had early on. 
Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I had some good people early, but there were a couple pretty important people who were misguided. And I try to make sure that I create an environment where vocal health above all is, is what's important. That technical strides are always being made, that there's always advancement in the quality uh, of what is being done. And one of the great things about working with the Philadelphia Boys and Girls Choirs through the Philadelphia Vocal Conservatory is that I can reach so many kids in a generation who are talented who, and, and get them started on the right path rather than letting them kind of dither around in the dark like I did for a very long time. It's hard because a lot of times a, a kid who's viewed as talented early on, those kids can sometimes be left to fend for themselves. Well, if they're talented, they're prodigies or something, then they don't need help. Well, no, actually those people need as much, if not more guidance than anybody else. If you've got a kid who's not a natural, not, well, not a prodigy, I should say, you know you're building from the ground up and that kid understands it. Sometimes when you get kids who are super talented, they're, like I said, they're left to fend for themselves. And I like making sure that those kids know what is going on, understand what is happening. Because a lot of times a prodigy can do it, but doesn't understand it. You're doing that from your own experience, saying yeah. you're filling in that gap. That you <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was hung out to drive a few times. <laughs> oh, wow. um, you know, later on in college and in graduate school and stuff where I, I shouldn't have been had I uh, had the right training earlier on. And so I'm trying to work to create a program where that the right training does take place. And how do you identify that with, with your students? What is the right thing or which students need what? I guess you take students individually, is that correct? Or do you have, right. uh, okay, you do have individual. So when um, you evaluate an individual student, what are you looking for? And what, how do you implement a strategy? Well, you have to, de it depends entirely on the individual. At the other school, it's a, it's a little bit different working for the this organization because it takes a certain amount of talent just to get through the door. The schools that I taught at in the past, anybody could walk in off the street and would want a voice lesson. And I became known as the voice teacher who would take on anybody. That if you came in and you were tone deaf or you had some horrible problem, I, would, I wanted to try to figure out how to fix that. That is not nearly as prevalent <laughs> with the Boys and Girls Choirs. But there still are issues. There still are things to be sorted out. And it has to be very, very individual. There is, I'm, although I do talk to the choirs a lot, I do a lot of technical work with the performing choir and with the chorale. I don't want to hand a, a one-size-fits-all technique to, out to everybody. I'm always trying to make sure that they, people have several different ways of dealing with things, that they know that they're in charge of it, that one of the worst things you can do, even if you have a great teacher, is to abdicate your responsibility to yourself, that you're the one who really teaches yourself everything. Because for each person, the structures inside the body are different. The feeling is different when something works right. What works for me may not work for another person. So everybody has a responsibility in their singing to make sure that they're, they're cognizant of that, that they understand what's going on and do the best that they can with it. With the littler kids, my littlest kids, some of the, the cadets that I teach, some of the beginning cadets that I teach, we call it, I have lots of anecdotal things and little um, animals that I use and stuff like that for kind of developing a methodology for teaching Swedish Italian school. And to approach this, we have something we call the Goldilocks effect. Oh, please describe that. It sounds cool. Well, the kids know the story. Goldilocks, uh, well, there's a lot of concern <laughs> from some of the kids over destruction of private property, but... 
the thing you can say for Goldilocks is that she was not easily satisfied with what was going on. She had to keep going until she found what was just right, that it was just right for her. Right. So that's uh, what I hope to instill into all the students that, that I will say, this is how you breathe. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. Now you go try it out. Please research it. Tell me if it doesn't work right. Tell me if it doesn't work that way for you. Tell me what you're feeling. In fact, probably the most said sentence in my studio, just after a kid gets done singing, I'll say, how did that feel? How did that feel? You describe it. You tell me. And then we base the changes that we make. Not not that there's not a lot of commonality (laughs) amongst people. I do repeat myself a lot, but there are some kids whose brains work one way and some kids whose brains work another, and you have to approach things differently for each of them. And if you don't get to work with them privately, you have to try to instill that in them from afar to like a mass audience, take this stuff home. When I was in high school myself, it was all just breathe harder, just more breath support will fix everything. And actually I found out that if you can have too little of something, you can have too much of it. And so I try to teach them what the problems are on both sides of that, what to watch for and how to find the balance point in the middle. Pretty much everything in singing is about finding balance. Oh, wow. Everything. So you can't just go in with a list of rules, do things as hard as you possibly can and expect it to work correctly. You have to think about it. And that catches a few kids off guard, especially if, like we were talking about earlier, if you're dealing with a prodigy who doesn't have to think about it, they open their mouth and it just comes out. Right then those are the kids that are the hardest to reach sometimes. Sometimes when you reach them, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, especially in the situation that we're in where the old wisdom regarding voice change was to leave it alone, that kids shouldn't sing during voice change. Okay. I don't agree with that. That's like saying that, you know, a kid who is growing shouldn't play soccer. (laughs) because he could damage himself. Um, I think if you're singing correctly, you can sing as much as you want. Okay. But, and so most of the voice teachers that I know have no comprehension of how to guide uh, a kid through a voice change, male or female. Okay. Yeah. Um, This is one of my questions for you. You know, definitely want to hear about how you, how you handle that. Well, that, you know what, I, I would freely admit that the bulk of what I have learned about vocal technique, I learned since I got my master's degree. I have learned more from the kids. I hate to say that all these kids are my guinea pigs, but every time a kid comes in the room, I learn from them, especially in the voice change things because voice changes are so individual. I was, I dropped like a rock. I was one of those people who just woke up one morning. They thought I had bronchitis and my voice actually has bounced back up since then. Other people, by the way, the kids, if there are uh, uh, kids in the performing part listening to this, they're probably sick of that story, by the way, (laughs) because I talk (laughs) about it all the time. And then there are people who float down. And then there's all manner of people in between who go in stages. Some people's voice change can be over with in a matter of a a month. And some people, it can take several years for it to go through. Actually, if you look at the big picture, that when people have a really quick voice change, a lot of times that's just the beginning. And then there still is a settling in that can take years. If you're talking in operatic terms, a a lot of voice types can take decades to to fully, I'm, I'm a held in tenor, held in tenors are generally, it's uh, not professionally viable until they're 35 to 40 years old, which is why there's so few of them because people don't feel like waiting around until that starts working. The Heldon tenor is usually a large, thicker, and more dramatic tenor voice. It sometimes produces a similar timbre in the high range as it possesses in the middle voice. Many call it a baritone with a high extension, but this is a misnomer 
In actuality, the singer is strong enough to sustain higher dramatic phrases because there is an upper register flip that is completely different from a baritone. When young, some heavy tenors have no top to their voices and are either wrongly classified as baritones or may pass through a high baritone phase on the way to acquiring the high notes necessary to fulfill their tenor destiny. This can result in confusing role discernment. Just like Justin Hopkins' vocal part of bass baritone, Heldon Tenor was first distinguished by Wagner when he heard the bohemian Joseph Tiacek sing. Bohemian Rhapsody, indeed. While the voice you are hearing now is not our guest's, it demonstrates the vocal range of the Heldon Tenor. Heldon Tenor voices are rare, difficult to teach, and require both luck and willpower from their owners. This may speak well to Michael Ashby's own vocal command and inspiration to be the teacher that he never had. And now back to the interview with Michael Ashby. So, and, and there's everything from, you know, maybe a light coloratura soprano might be ready to go on stage at the Met at the age of 20. And so there's, there's so much variation in the human body. The voice changes. Oh, again, I can give another example. Uh, the youngest I've had, I had a family, and these, this is guided by genetics. I have had a family in my studio years ago where the brothers, their voices changed at the age of nine. They became baritones. I've got kids in my studio right now who are struggling with the voice change. I think hopefully it will be done by the time they turn 17. <laughs> so there's a people, a lot of the kids will come in to me and say, well, your voice changes when you're like 13 or when you're 12. I'm like, eh, maybe. It depends upon you. It depends right. entirely upon you, how long it takes how dramatic it is and there is no study on this i don't think anybody <laughs> i want to go sometimes to my niece who's a geneticist and say what well, would you consider studying voice change but i i don't think there's the need for it i think it's a fairly niche set of circumstances you know so so my research may be all that's ever done on it or the research of voice teachers like me and so what my goal is with the choirs working with cadets and working with uh, kids on the other side of that at the end of the performing choir and going into the corral is to get them healthily into the choir as early as I can if they're emotionally ready for it too, if they're, if they're mature enough for it, but trying to get their voices to the point where they can handle what's going on. And then because boy sopranos and boy altos are time consuming, mm -hmm. you want to have them there as long as you possibly can. So instead of having a crash out at the end of that, when their voice starts to change, a lot of times, maybe they're the kind that just floats down. But when they first hit those initial changes, something can lock up. And if I can get to them in time, sometimes we can unlock that and get maybe another six months or a year out of a boy soprano, or he can go down through boy soprano, through boy alto, and we can get some more time out of him in the red blazer before he has to move on to the corral. Sure. Sometimes he can't do anything about it. Sometimes it's just genetics and you just can't. I have a lot of kids who come in and say things like, well, uh, I was a soprano, so my voice is changing, so I'm going to be a tenor. And I'm like, even if there is a correlation to that on any level, you're going to be the exception. If I tell you that's the truth, you're going to be the one for whom it's not the truth. So no, there is no correlation. I have not seen one at right. this point. But the more information I gain on this, the more I seem to be able to help kids as they make that change. And even later on in the, the corral, with the more mature people that we have in the corral, dealing with moving on, there's, there's a voice change that kind of happens at the other end of life. 
And some people, when they run up against that, it's kind of a wall where they have to quit singing, but maybe they don't have to if they can adjust their technique to, to work with their body instead of against it. There have been times with the older members of the crowd that we've been able to get rid of something that they've been doing since the early 70s that wasn't right and actually, you know, was causing problems, but they were always able to force past it. And then once they reach a certain age, it doesn't work anymore. So you have to go in and go, okay, I wish you'd make this change a long time ago, but let's make it now and see if we can make this more comfortable for you. That takes so, a lot of work for them to readjust after all those decades of yes. doing it one way. Yes, and sometimes I don't get the best reaction to that. There are times that I'm, I will get uh, hired out by church choirs and things to come in and do a, a technique uh, rehearsal. And there have been a couple of times that I've had negative responses to that. I've always sung fine and I don't need this. And I don't, you know, and <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm just here trying to help. And if you don't want to listen, you don't have to. But I like that within the choir, within the choir organization, they're very results oriented. So if I can go in and prove to them, well, no, if everybody sings it this way, if we all talk about it this way, this works better. And then suddenly the choir improves, they don't deny that, they'll go ahead and change that. You know, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of tradition within, within the organization that to me was rather daunting when I first started working with them. But what I've got to see is that if what I say works, if I'm right, they're perfectly willing to consider that. They're not going to go, you know, just tradition, just nothing else. They will move with the times and they will they will change and fix things. This is a, a big consideration because in choirs in America, there is kind of a certain set technique that's very, very common. And a lot of that I'm working against. I, I'm, I'm trying to reteach against that to, because it was what I was taught early on and it made me very uncomfortable for a very long time to the point where I almost gave up singing at one point. And so for me, the struggle was really horrible this situation has allowed me to turn that around and work with that, make use of all that, all of what I went through. Does that answer that question? Do you need more? <laughs> well, that, that's great. You have a, you've given us a lot. It proves even more how much you have to rely on the students to work so hard to overcome. Because when you get that feedback, you get that pushback, especially, well, mm -hmm. this is how we've always done it. Well, okay, then you're not going to learn. You're not going to grow. You're not going to be a better singer if you're not willing to change and grow. I, so, think, I think the hardest part of that for me is having to learn where some people's limits are. With some right. of the kids, if they're just not going to change that, then, then I go, I'll keep offering the information, but I'm not going to. There are times I've been kind of emotionally invested in getting someone past something. And if they don't have the interest to change that, I can't do much for them. But we can still be there to try to surround them with a culture that leads in the right direction. And whether right. they decide to take it on personally or not, hopefully they'll get carried along and, and they'll see more and more people doing things and take it on maybe subconsciously. To me, it sounds like there's this, this concept of, of a battle within the singers. You know, you've got the Philadelphia Boys Choir that attracts so many prodigies and, you know, Good great kids. singers, singers yeah. of course. But then, as you said, with prodigies, they're not as teachable always, but perhaps the, uh, the willingness to be taught is from the clout of this great organization with so much success and you as a teacher so again i have to prove myself i have to actually make something work better for the kid sometimes it means i have to fool them sometimes i have to give them something and get them to do it without them realizing it i used to have a, a boss at another institution that i worked at who said he didn't he didn't understand how we how voice teachers did it because 
what we do is kind of one third science, one third educator, and one third voodoo. Where you, <laughs> you have to, <laughs> voice is the only instrument you can't take out of the case. Mm. So it's, it's hardwired directly into a person's head and heart. And I can't just look at your hands on the piano or something and guide that. And I could talk about it very, very succinctly, but you know, I, I can make mention of your, I don't know, cricothyroid ligament, but it's not going to make any difference. So I have to work with images and then I have to try to relate that back to real things that actually make sense to the kid in their development and uh, that they can carry with them and that they can grow with. Uh, again, I'm, I'm running out. I can talk about this stuff all the time. <laughs> Sure. Mr. Smith and Mr. Stroud know that. that <laughs> you set me going and I'll just talk about vocal technique all day long. So I have to always stop myself and go, was that all I needed to say or not? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> that's fine. You mentioned the Philadelphia Vocal Conservatory. Is that, uh, that's what you work for distinctly? Is that a subgrouping in the Philadelphia it's, Boys Choir and Chorale? Can you explain that? Please? It's the Philadelphia Boys Choir, Boys and Girls Choirs. We are a portion of that, that um, we actually have uh, two private voice teachers, me and Maria Russo. And we also have a, a Bill Deal, a, a piano teacher. So we provide private lessons for those who want. And I run the summer camp programs. So right now I'm trying to figure out how to do virtual Broadway, choral and opera camps this summer. I'm not sure how many years we've been, we, I was brought in initially, that was the initial gig that I was brought in for. I was doing opera camps at Rutgers. And they brought me down to do the first opera camp. Before we had the current building, uh, I think that we did the first one at Academy of Vocal Arts. They got that for us for the summer. And uh, so it's been several years ago. I'm not sure how many. And we added on more camps. We started doing private lessons. And then the private lessons kind of spilled over. And one day, Mr. Smith came to me and asked me if I would come in and just do some troubleshooting for him on a few people who were having some specific problems that, you know, the general wisdom wasn't helping at that point. So I was able to go in and troubleshoot and then a little more and a little more and a little more until I think this year, I, if we're in the building, I think I'm involved in four or five rehearsals a week between the boys choir and the girls choir. And I'm teaching between 30 and 40 private students a week as well. So it's all kind of grown up around that. And I would just love for the whole program to keep going. I think it's actually, having worked with other organizations, this is easily the best one that I've ever worked with in that regard. That as a nonprofit, the good that they do in the community, they will actually go out and just actually really help someone. I'm not gonna give specifics on it, but th there have been times in the past at other schools where I said, I, I need to help this kid. This kid needs help. And, and I was told, well, no, do they have the money? Does this happen? You know, and, and I'm like, well, no, that's, that's why I need to help them. <laughs> and right. that, wasn't, that wasn't really a consideration for them. So okay. um, in this situation, they go out of their way. They, I have seen them again and again, go out of their way to help people who needed help. And I think that is a wonderful thing. And I don't see how you can be a really good musician and not be like that. Sure. <laughs> I think one of the things, you know, when I was doing operas and stuff, the, the thing that I noticed that it was kind of a funny thing to realize one day was that actually the most talented people were generally the kindest. I think that's an important thing to notice about music. You know, if you see something in a movie or a play or something where there's someone who's a musician who's for all intents and purposes evil, I'm like, I just don't buy that. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody who's really a real musician 
there's a lot of caring that goes on. And, Why do you uh, think that is? Well, I think part of it is uh, an awareness that comes with it, brain development, working with other people. There's what's the, I can't think of the name of the pheromone, the, the trust hormone that we produce, the, the cuddling hormone. I can't think of the name of it, but it's a, we produce it during choral singing and it bonds people together and makes them care about it. And then, you know, I'm not saying it's all chemical, but <laughs> you know, there are lots of different mechanisms at work. One of the things that I've been trying to do recently in the last three months as we've been, I've been teaching 30 or 40 lessons a week online is just checking in on my kids, just checking in on them emotionally and making sure that they're okay, making sure that they're being watched out for. And generally they are, but every once in a while you see a kid who's depressed and then I'll try to get other kids, that kid's age to call in, like maybe if he has friends or something within my studio, I'll try to make sure that he's hooked up with other kids that he can talk to and just check in on him once a week, in addition to the singing, in addition to the music. But I think that those things, they just go together. How have you seen, without mentioning names maybe, but how have you seen well, our help? If there was somebody who needs scholarship okay. or somebody who needs into a camp and there's a problem there. And I honestly have to say when I, the first time I approached the, the powers that be at the choirs, <laughs> I was totally shocked. I was expecting to be told to go away. And okay. I can't think of a circumstance under which I've ever been told to go away. I think there have been situations where it's been very, very difficult to try to do anything but that was logistics. But it's taken me a while to acclimatize, after years of working in other kinds of situations, uh, it's taken me a while to acclimatize the idea that just go, just go do it. Just go help people was the, the, the preferred way of doing things, which I think, it, you know, I want that first, so. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So how, how many years have you been associated with the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Corral? Uh, I, I'm trying to think back. I think I'm going to go conservatively. I'm going to say like 10, maybe. Okay. That, part of the problem with that is that, that um, very few people who do what I do have one job. Right. So at the time that I took on the choir and started doing the camps, I was also teaching at a music school um, out in the suburbs where I live. I was teaching still at Rutgers. I was doing their summer camp programs and teaching a couple of days. I would drive over to New Brunswick and then I would have side performing gigs and stuff like that. So I would have four to five jobs every week at the same time. And then you don't just quit one arbitrarily because you're going to, what happened is that the choir job keeps growing and growing and growing until I can just gently slough off the other ones. I can phase them out. So the lines of demarcation are really hazy in my memory. But I have gotten rid of all the other jobs at this point, and this is the only one that I have. That this is that this is there is so much to do there that I can't accommodate this and still keep the other gigs that I had. Right. Well, that's a testimony to your success and your hard work and how yeah, how well you, you helped other people. Absolutely. And and I'm really I love doing that. When I just say that the first time Smith brought me into. Some teachers work well in front of a classroom. Some teachers work well in a one-on-one -on -one situation. I'm really good in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Okay. Going in in front of a couple hundred people and fixing technique. Or a lot of what a voice teacher does is empathic. So I listen to someone. I use my body like an x-ray machine. And as they sing, I can feel what's going on. I can feel obstructions or I can feel tensions or I can feel pushing or something. And the more I do that, the better I get at it. 
going in to a choral situation and having to assess empathically is completely different <laughs> and it's a it's it's a little scary and i uh luckily uh smith has let me stand there and make faces and go uh, 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 okay i'm getting and it, it it looks a little do you know i've told him this story and i've told several people this story actually but um uh, I'll say it because I know Smith is a Star, Star Trek fan. You ever take those quizzes online that say, which character are you from Star Wars or Star Trek or something? Yeah. And I would take this, the Star Trek quiz. And I would always get the the psychic lady. I would always get Deanna. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, on Next Generation. I'm not going to. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to share that. That's really not. Sometimes I would get the doctor, but I would always get this empath thing over and over again. I was like, oh, brilliant. I'm never going to be a captain. And... Um, <laughs> One day I'm in, I forget whether it was a voice check or, or a rehearsal of some kind, and I was sitting over to Mr. Smith's left, and Mr. Stroud was on the other side of him, and, and they were both talking, and, and I think it was a voice check. I think it was a voice check. It was, it was the first time he'd ever asked me into a voice check, and I was sitting there thinking, why am I here? What does he want me to do? I'm not sure what my role is supposed to be at this point, because we're kind of inventing it. And they had a kid that they were talking about and working with and they got a little stymied with one of the kids and he suddenly turned to me and he goes, are you getting anything? I was like, oh, I am the psychic lady. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That is my job. That is what I am doing. And so I would listen to the kid. I wouldn't feel, oh, I think his soft palate is doing this and his whatever is doing this and, and the way he's built, blah, blah, blah. Or his breath is under-supported or over-supported or in the wrong place. And, and I can go in and address very specifically and, and make my best guess as to what's going on with that. Like I said, though, that's much harder to do with a group of people, but I'm getting better at that, too. But the thing that I've had to become satisfied with is that it's a lot of times about percentages that Mr. Smith will say, OK, tender ones are having a problem on this line. What's the problem? I was like, there's not one problem. 60% of them are doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll fix that and then I go okay and there's another bunch that's doing this and then there's a bunch that I'm not quite sure what's going on with them yet but we can fix this much of that and then hopefully that will change the sound in the section and the people who aren't immediate changers the people who aren't as physically aware as they're surrounded by the right thing will kind of rise float to that level they'll, they'll be kind of carried along with that so like I said it's, it's kind of weird developing a method for this. In fact, my teacher in New York, who's best voice teacher I've ever met, um, I, when I told him what I do uh, with the choirs, he, he said, oh, you do that? I don't know. I hate that. It's like, I've been, I asked, was asked to do that one time and I don't want to do it. And he was trained as a choral director. And so mm -hmm. he's much more used to it. I wasn't trained as a choral director, but he, you know, he was used to dealing with things like, oh, I don't, I, he's like, I can't, I don't understand how you can do that. But again, I think it's the difference in brains, how people work. And it's just something that I didn't know that I could do. And now I'm developing a skill. And I'm hoping that the longer I get to work with the group, the better and better and better that will get. I want to be one of those people who eventually when I'm like, you know, 80, uh, I can walk in, hear somebody sing for three seconds and go, blah, 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 and just give a list of things that they need to change. And to some extent, like for, for me personally, my teacher is like that. He immediately could name off things. And, and I want to be that good someday but I don't think I'm that good yet. <laughs> but every day, every lesson that I teach is another chance to get better at it.
Yeah. As well as getting making the kids better. (laughs) (laughs) But you're humble and you're striving to be better. And I think that that is a great example to the kids as part of the choir saying, okay, well, I've I've gotten to a certain point where I'm I'm really good, but there's room to grow and I'm going to do it better. Well, I think it's also, it, that is very important to impart to kids. I try to tell kids all the time that nothing teaches you, uh, you so much as being allowed to go and big, make a big mess of things and then figure out how to clean it up. A lot of times they aren't given that opportunity these days, that everything has to be perfect and precise. And I think that's what the, the vocal conservatory, that's to some extent their role. The camps, that's the role. The choirs demand so much of the kids and it's a professional organization and they have to go out and do things to a certain level. And I know that the vocal conservatory is the educational part of that in a way that lets people individually go in and really mess up and really try things out and see what they want to do, see if this is the right for them personally and, and learn and start learning for themselves about it. At one point in my college education, I was going to you know, teach in the public schools and I decided I didn't want to do that. I'm, I'm much happier that it came out this way. It's the constraints on it, the time limits on it are really difficult and I have a lot more freedom and, and I am actually able to do a lot more good. Uh, right. So I think that's the most important thing. Moments of incredible pride. <laughs> Cameron Bowden singing on the Today Show at the solo yeah. on the Silent Night and the work that he has done since then, I'm just as proud of. Seeing how this is one of Michael Ashby's proudest moments as a vocal teacher, let's hear how Cameron Bowden performed on the Today Show in December of 2018. amazing that was beautiful can we just ask what your name is too uh cameron bowden cameron that was awesome y'all are amazing wow gorgeous right i feel like i've never heard this song before until now it was really beautiful thank you so much to the philadelphia boys choir and chorale wow indeed and now back to the interview with vocal teacher michael ashby well you you've talked about how you have 35 to 45 lessons every week or so Mm -hmm. obviously among all the choirs with the philadelphia boys choir the corral the cadet programs the two cadet programs and the girls choir there's a lot more than 35 to 45 people involved Mm -hmm. so the numbers for all the choirs combined are much more than 35 to 45 are you able to reach each individual over the course of a time period or is there a strategy i'm going to work with these people or how does that all work we have well there are spreadsheets involved yes and there is a review of each of the singers hopefully i get to see each of the singers if they're not having any kind of issues or something at least once or twice a year if smith or stroud notices that someone's having an issue they'll be put on the my docket to, to see me somebody who's having a real issue can see me several times at the director's request 
and during those times, if if there is room in my studio, if the person has interest in lessons, I'll see what I can do. If they can't be fit into my schedule, I would try to give them guidance on trying to find a good voice teacher, uh, what to look for, and try to leave the door open that if they want to discuss the things that they're being taught, that they can come back and talk to me about it. And okay. I can give them some guidance on that. Because I do know that one of my problems early on was that I got a voice teacher. I assumed all voice teachers were the same and I just kind of fell into it. And I fell into the next voice teacher and then and the first two or three were great. And then I fell into another one that messed me up for a very long time. Uh-huh. So it's, you have to be careful. It is so personal. A lot of times I will, especially with kids at my camps, well, I know that so-and-so isn't the greatest voice teacher, but I really like him or her. That's well, not a reason to study with somebody. You need to look at what's going on for you. Right. And maybe that person would be the right teacher for another person. But maybe if you know that it's not right for you, then you do need to do both of you a favor and get out of there uh, and go find what you do need. I would have to say with my teaching, I am much more... Uh, this was not the way it was initially. But over 20, 25 years of teaching, I have become much more mechanical. I, I'm much more about the technique of it. I, I'm, I'm always dubious of people where it goes to expression first. Kids are gonna express themselves anyway. <laughs> but if you don't get the artist, if you don't get the, the mechanics of it right, if you don't have that understanding of it, how effective is the rest of it going to be? Right. So I do come down a little more heavily on this, this side of, of really understanding what's going on with singing. I think because initially I didn't understand what was going on for a very long time with my own singing. Yeah, and that, uh, that circles back to what you said from the beginning. With you want to be the teacher that you never had, or to fill the gap, right? So right. Yeah. So considering about how you are an empath and you're always connecting with the emotions of your students, there are two opportunities for your students to come in and maybe not be super enthusiastic when they're perhaps being assigned by Mr. Smith or Mr. Stroud saying well, you need to work on something that can be deflating or if their voices are changing. Obviously, being in the boys' choir, being a soprano or an alto, it's part of the identity from what I've understood. Mm -hmm. How do you care for kids, uh, choristers specifically, who are struggling with the fact, oh man, I've been sent to Mr. Ashby because I'm not, you know, doing so well or I am losing my identity as, you know, a soprano. Well, first off, uh, I don't know if you've seen my studio, but I try to make it kind of a destination. (laughs) I try to make sure that people know what that room is and that it's not a bad thing. I don't want it to be austere. I don't want it to be scary in any way. I don't try to dumb down what I'm saying, but I I certainly try to use metaphor and simile that, that relates to the kid that they can understand and then relate that back to technically what is going on. What makes this very different as far as dealing with voice changes. Outside a choir, a kid's voice starts to change. Maybe if he's the first one in this class, he's not gonna be thrilled about it. But by the time other boys' voices are starting to change, he's gonna be thrilled when suddenly he's a baritone one day. That's reversed in the choirs because the voice change means that they're going to have to sit in a different section. They're gonna sit away from their friends. They may have to meet new people and which was kind of a shock for me because I went in thinking, well, they just all know each other and they don't. Right. They've got little pockets of little communities in the different sections. It was rather stupid of me. I mean, I've been in choirs lots of times where I didn't know anybody but the people that I sat next to. And I thought, well, I guess that, you know, I, when they come to me and one of the first things I did when I started doing, we call them assessments, when Mr. Smith years ago started sending the first 
groups of kids to me for assessments. If I thought it, that a voice change was, was on the horizon for a kid, I would just talk about it. Because a lot of times I think that that's been something that in previous years was kind of, you know, kids would hide it. Mm -hmm. Kids would do their very, very best to hide it, maybe even making themselves very uncomfortable or hurting themselves a little bit. Sure. And so I want to bring it out in the open, talk about it, make sure that they know it's a natural part of the process, that it's, you're much more likely to be able to lengthen your time uh, in the red blazer if you are actively embracing the voice change and learning how to work with it. It's the people who lock up muscles and fight against it who actually end up kind of, it, it stops working. It kind of locks up. For instance, I, I'm going to see a couple of boys this week who are going through voice change right now. And we are trying to keep it around, especially under the current circumstances, we're trying to keep them in the red blazer for another year. Now, I don't make those decisions. That's always up to the directors. Right. But I will do what I can. And when they go in and start, like maybe if they've got a new chest voice emerging, if, it's, if that the, the lower range has moved down enough that it's starting to sound adult, they think if they avoid that, that it's going to keep them up high longer. When actually it's just the opposite that if you embrace that, learn how to sing through the registral shifts, you kind of expand the voice and make the whole thing comfortable, you'll be able to go up into the top much more easily for longer. At least that has been my experience thus far, working with kids through that voice change. You know, where you have to, where you have kids that you have to keep singing in concerts. They have to, you know, the, the goal is to keep them on stage as long as you can contributing. You don't really have the luxury of just going, okay, take a year off. Get, go, come back in a couple of years because eventually you just lose those kids too. We don't get them right. back. Well, not all of them. In some cases, this is, this is such an important part of their life. You, right. you want them to know that there is a route through this. I think even the cambiata section that Mr. Smith created and the junior corral, the culture surrounding that, the attitude toward that has changed drastically. I, when I first talked to kids about it years ago, when it first happened, they were like, oh, I don't know, that's not, you know, and now a lot of them are just like, that's just a natural progression in things, which I think is emotionally a lot more healthy for them. Sure. And, you know, I've had to point out common sense things, you know, that several times where it's like, okay, so you're not going to be a soprano anymore. So you're not going to sit next to your friends, but I think you're becoming a tenor. So you would sit in the row behind all your friends. Is that such <laughs> a bad thing? Um, okay. You, maybe you'll have to sit across the room, but you're still going to see them. You're still going to be around them. The, the talks that I'm able to give on that, trying to write a book about it. I don't know when that's going to actually come to fruition, but I work on it all the time, trying to develop this methodology for, teaching what the, my version of Swedish Italian vocal technical school to children and having them grow up through it and having part of the method be singing through voice change, singing through, keeping a kid healthy and making it function very well during all of that. So they can just sing their whole life and grow up into that. They're going to sing a lot longer as an adult. Right. So I don't want a technical, I don't want a technical style for them that only works as a kid, but one that they can grow up with, that they can make changes to. And that just becomes a natural set of tools that they go back to and readjust for wherever they are in their life for whatever physical changes they're going through. Yeah. It seems to me, and I don't know a whole lot about engineering and architecture, but from what I've heard, you know, the bridges that are built so that they can sway in the wind are the ones that will survive right. and the ones that are strict and, and stiff mm -hmm. are the ones that, that is. That is a really hard thing to impart to kids that because the, the structural structures in the vocal tract we're the only instrument that can harden and soften those muscles that can harden and soften the resonator. So 
when you're, if you're playing a, a cello, the resonator on that is made of wood. It doesn't change consistency while you're playing it. If you're playing a, a tuba, it's made out of brass or whatever they make them out of. And it doesn't change. It doesn't change consistently, but we can change consistency of our vocal tract. And a lot of times people are doing that, not realizing it. Maybe they get themselves into trouble with it. Especially if they're approaching a vocal change, they may start gripping it, hardening it, trying to control what's happening when actually what they need to do is soften it up and, and let their body figure out how to handle it. And we've had some really great success stories with that recently. I had a student a couple years ago who was doing big solos and then right after Christmas, his voice cracked and he just kind of walked down through each section and he ended up doing solos, I think in almost every concert I heard all through the tour. And then by my summer opera camp, he was singing tenor <laughs> and he's singing beautifully. And, and that's, I want to see that kind of soft landing. I don't want to see, uh, it was very common to see kind of traumatic changes. Mm -hmm. it, it, before I started working with this group, I would see voice changes that were very traumatic for kids a lot of times. And there's just no reason for them to be. I just, I just don't think there are, as long as everybody's talking about it. And, and I, I will admit that some, sometimes I think people get a little annoyed at me because I may be the only person in the building who's excited when a kid's voice changes because <laughs> I want to hear what they're going to become. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they're like, hey, uh, you know, somebody needs to be happy that it's going on and, 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 and work with them toward that to make a, a beautiful, and, you know, it's not like there's not a place for them after that. It's just right. we have these little ephemeral beings that we have to <laughs> train up <laughs> that, sure. that are valuable. So I'm not a singer at all. I haven't trained. I don't have a lot of confidence in, in what I would do. So I never grew up in a choir or did anything along those lines. I remember when my voice was changing, I actually started to deepen my voice on purpose before the cracking so that it wouldn't crack and I wouldn't be embarrassed by it. Yeah, and that's where people can get into trouble because depending upon your physical makeup, if you try to deepen it, you may be doing it in a couple different ways. If one of the ways that you're doing it is by thickening your vocal cords, you may actually make the cracking worse. Huh. Wow. So, I thought of that back then. <laughs> yeah. No, no, nobody has. Nobody thinks right. about it logically. You're just de desperately. And not only that, but a lot of times the voice change doesn't happen all at once because what's happening, there's a change in the correlation between the amount of musculature and the, the, the amount of muscle mass in the body and the size of the resonator or the size of the, the, the vocal tract, or the size of the vocal cords themselves. And so maybe they're grown a little bit, but your body's gotten a lot bigger and a lot, you know, you're, like the muscles in a kid's neck get thicker, but his voice isn't ready to change yet. But he's got so much more muscle that when he kind of pushes the button that says sing in his brain, it's hooked up to a lot more machinery than it used to be. And so that can go in and really lock things up. So you have to teach, a lot of what I do is teaching people to not support as much, to pull off of that and find the way through that actually allows it to function and talk to them about that correlation and make sure that they realize that every day that they're waking up, that's not just during the voice change. Every day that you wake up, your voice is different. Hmm. So you have to, a really good singer wakes up, realizes where they are, what's going on. And, you know, even from, from hormone levels to allergies to, to hydration to so many different things impacting it. But if you have the right tools and your awareness of your vocal tract and of your singing is what it should be, even when someone's ill, within reason, they can generally go out and function pretty well if, they're, if they know what is going on, if they've kind of been told the truth about how it functions. Wow. So with all of your expertise and all of your coaching and teaching that you do with the boys' choir and the girls' choir, when you, when you go to an event, a concert that they're holding, 
are you able to actually appreciate it as as a uh, audience <laughs> member or are you like oh i hope this person does this or oh they didn't do that people may have seen me at the back with a notepad and pencil generally what i'm doing is i'm taking notes okay um, that i that i pass along no there are moments that i enjoy it but as with anything when you decide to work in something as opposed to just enjoying it it does rob you of a certain amount of freedom of enjoyment that's you know the, that's and that's not just regarding the choir that's all singers you know i used to just enjoy listening to a singer now i cannot you know how they always tell you that you know you have a little trouble with insomnia you should listen to music i can't listen to music before i'm a musician i just start analyzing things <laughs> and uh, so th there's a part of my brain that i can't turn off but at right. the same time there are lots of times i really do enjoy what's going on when we had the last auction with the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale, you submitted this artwork that was, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was beautiful. And it was like, did you put paper together or was it a- Oh, was it the Viking? That, yes. Or that, yes. Uh, uh, it was felt, it was just felt work. So you did felt work and you patched it all together? How does that- Yeah, I don't know. I just, um, as a person who's obsessively creative, there have been times in my life when I couldn't sing and I couldn't perform maybe before the choirs, I didn't have summer camp programs and I didn't have things like that to be worried about. And it will try to find an outlet. <laughs> and so suddenly I'm just making stuff. And if you've been in my studio, you've seen the paintings and the, you know, I'm just constantly making something. Now that was just, that was just like applique felt. And I just made it up out of scraps. <laughs> you make it sound so simple, but it was beautiful. I love to put it in terms of the fact that like when I when I've had conversations with Mr. Smith, he will say, I, I will say, oh my gosh, the man, in some respects, he's like a computer. I can't hear harmony the way he hears it. I'm a single line instrument. My brain is not formatted for that. I, mean, I, I understand it, but I don't hear all those things. And it's always kind of satisfying when he turns and looks at me and goes, where are you getting that from? How do you how do you hear that? How do you? I'm like, well, I thought everybody could hear. You know, we're all so different. Even within the musical community, there are so many different ways of looking at stuff. So, and I think all arts are tied together. Right now, we've got kids. I don't want to give away too much, but they want me to do like mini videos for, for right. the little kids on the the animal methodology, you know, the bullfrog and the turtle tongue and all those things. That, and we are currently. I've got kids working on it trying to animate me, um, which I'm really hoping works. <laughs> I don't know. It's something we've never, and, and people keep asking me like, well, how's that going to happen? What's going to be like? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. That's the problem with creativity. And you hand it off to this kid who can suddenly work some kind of animation program and they're excited about it. And I'm like, well, fine. If you're excited, then that's a good sign. I'll just let you go and try to work with it for a month and we'll see what comes up out of that. I, I am excited about that kind of stuff. And just the moment that I, I think, well, that's just a, Ashby, you finally come up with a really dumb idea. And then I go, no, oh, let's just run it by somebody. And a kid will, if a kid picks it up and goes, no, I want to do that one. So uh, we've actually, we, this might, that might turn into something in the future that that might turn into something for that kid in the future, which right. is even more exciting. If it goes on, becomes a part of a career choice or something, or and this has happened. If a kid tries it out and goes, you know what? I don't want to do that. The very first opera camp that we held for, that I held for the Boys Choir, we had a girl who we brought in from outside the organizations, <clears throat> pretty good mezzo-soprano, and she was determined to become a musician. She wanted to be a singer. She wanted to sing opera. And she wanted to do all this stuff. And I said, okay, well, you've never been to anything like that. Come to this opera camp and you can try out a few scenes and you can do some things. And, and 
and we got to the end and I said so tell me what you thought of it she said I hated it I'm never doing it again hmm. I can't imagine why everyone would do this I just thought it was all getting compliments I didn't realize how much work went into it <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said well then and she's like I really don't want to hurt your feelings I'm like you're not hurting my feelings I'm actually kind of gratified that you didn't just stumble along and do the next thing blindly. But if you're going to do something this hard, if you're going to become a professional musician, you have to think about it. You have to, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible, but you do yeah. have to think about it. And there've been lots of times that I've had kids come in and we've had to sit down and have some very hard conversations. There's a big difference between being talented and really actually wanting to do it. Right. right. Um, there are a lot of people who work in community theater who are local celebrities but run insurance agencies and, and are very happy people. And that's what's really important about it, you know, sure. that they get to express that. But, but it doesn't mean everybody needs to have a professional career. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the kids in the choir get to experience the professional side of things much more than other people. They, they actually have more of an idea of that going into it. So. I do want to say thank you so much, Michael Ashby, for joining us on Behind the Blazer. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and learn about who you are and the voice teacher that you are with the Philadelphia Vocal Conservatory. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And we thank you for listening to Behind the Blazer. I'm your host, Scott Sempier. This has been a podcast of Behind the Blazer, the official podcast of the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. To buy tickets for the next performance, support, hire the choir, or audition, go to our website at phillyboyschoir.org.